Hi, I'm Shelby. And I'm Janine. We are the hosts of We We Art Here. Here. We talk about art. Keep listening. Hi, everyone. So I'm introducing uh, the second episode in the new season of the We Art Here podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, And in this episode, I interviewed a professor and a filmmaker, a screenwriter, editor, uh, Elisa Herman. Uh, She has been a professor that I have had uh, at Sam Houston State University, where she currently serves as an associate professor of mass communication, film, and TV, and uh, as a film program coordinator at uh, Sam Houston State University. And she is an absolutely amazing professor who just had a documentary premiere called Umbanda, Offerings of Faith, uh, which is about uh, a religion that is practiced in her home country of Brazil. So we talked about that. And if you would like to see more from Elisa Herman, please visit her website, uh, lisaherman.com. I will put the link in the info. I hope you all enjoy this interview and find it inspiring. Thank you all for listening. So how are you doing today? I am doing fine. I am doing great. Quarantining at the moment, but quarantining at the beach, which is not bad. (laughs) Nice view. Great. Um, Is it loud over there? Or like, are you kind of, is it very quiet because you're by the beach or? It's very quiet. Um, There's actually no one in the building where I am at. I am at right now. It's just me in the entire building. So pretty quiet. Uh, I can hear the ocean though, because it's about, it's less than a block away actually. Um, So I can hear the, the, the waves, which is very nice, but other than that, it's pretty calm. Sometimes I hear a dog barking or something, but it's pretty pretty quiet. Is it is that like are you afraid at all to be like the only person? Not really, because you know there are locks everywhere and an alarm system, so <laughs> I'm, I feel pretty safe. No, no different than being at home, I guess. So yeah, I'm not really afraid. Okay. Well, when I quarantined last year here, um, there was one night the the alarm set off and it was really loud. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. (laughs) So I guess that day I was scared. In the end, it was actually not an alarm in my building. It was was the building next door, but it was so loud that it seemed that it was here. And, um, but yeah, I just, I I had to call the security company and ask them like, Hey, what's going on? And then they, they were like, Oh no, it's the building next door. It's not your building. And someone set it off accidentally. They forgot their key or something. So it was, it was nothing. So that was a little scary because I was like, why is the alarm set off? And I'm all alone. Uh, But other than that, not really. Okay, last like question that's not directly related. Have you uh-huh. been able to get like some of your favorite types of food? 
Yes. So when I arrived, uh, because I'm quarantining, my brother had shopped for me uh, and I sent him a list of things. And in the list of things, there were several goodies of things that I can get in the United States, um, like cookies and chocolate and like things that only exist here. And my mom had cooked a homemade home, uh, meal for me, <laughs> um, which I love. She's Lebanese, so she cooked some Lebanese food for me. So yeah, I definitely got some good food. There is no diet for me when I'm here. I just want to eat everything that I'm missing. So I can't complain <laughs> about food. I'm well served. That's good. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Okay, so into filmmaking now. Uh, I guess, how did you first kind of find out that you enjoyed making films? I always enjoyed watching films. So that, that was the first thing. Like ever since I was little, I loved movies. Um, I, I have these memories of me being a child and watching like The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. Um, of course, I'm not that old, so they were not new films. They were just, you know, films that my parents had seen and they wanted to show their kids, that kind of thing. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I just love them. It was, it was a fun time. Um, when it was time for me to choose a college degree, I honestly had no idea what to do. I was very lost and I ended up choosing art education because there was honestly the reason was uh, my family is a family of artists maybe I should just try that um, my family has like musicians painters that kind of thing so you know everybody kind of has like an artistic vein um, so I was like well, okay I guess I'll just go this route right um, so I, I, uh, I started my bachelor's degree in art education um, and one of the classes was film. And that's when I was like, wow, I love this. Like when I started understanding how movies were made, I was like, I really like this. Um, but at the time there were no, um, bachelor degrees in film in my hometown. They didn't exist any. So I just kept doing art education. I graduated and I started doing some like workshops that people were offering on filmmaking, like local filmmakers had like this different kinds of workshops on film. Um, at some point I saved enough money to buy a JVC camcorder, the ones that use tapes um, that I still, it's still there in my house. It's, I, I bet it still works. Uh, it's in good shape, but I saved money for like an entire year to be able to buy one of those. Um, and I just started making my own silly home videos, you know, um, just family videos. And in time, I started getting my friends and writing little scripts and, and shooting with that little camera. Uh, I actually need to find the tapes and see if I can digitize them. I will probably be horrified at the awful job I did as a filmmaker back then. Um, but it would be fun to see um, us a lot younger, I guess. Um, then after I graduated, I found out that there was um, 
certificate degree, a graduate certificate degree in audiovisual communications at one of the universities um, in my state. And I decided to go there. So I, I did that. It was a two-year program. Uh, so I got the certificate in audiovisual communications. And that's where I met a group of people who were interested in doing the same thing that I was doing. I was like, oh, hey, I, now I'm meeting these other people that love making films too. Um, so uh, for a brief period of time, we kind of gathered and created like a company that would be making videos and stuff like that um, professionally, um, more towards advertising than um, so like TV commercials, that kind of thing. Um, that didn't last long. I think there were four of us at first and only one of us continued. Um, and actually he still works with that, which is pretty cool. Like, I think he still has the company and he's doing pretty well as like a TV, a, a TV commercial director. He, he, he's doing really well doing that. Um, but for me, what happened was at, in the beginning, we were not actually making any money. It was, we were doing everything for free. And at this point, I was already working as uh, an English teacher, as a second language teacher in an English school. And that was my source of income. So that's where, that, that was the job that paid my bills. And at some point, my teaching schedule started to conflict with the shooting schedule for this other company. And I just had to make a choice because you know, I couldn't hold them back and say, no, you have to change the schedule to meet my needs, which, you know, they couldn't do. And I also couldn't quit school because I, that, that's what paid my bills. I didn't really have an option. So I ended up, you know, leaving, um, sadly, but I had to, there was no option for me at the time. So I essentially worked as an English teacher for several years after that to a point where I had given up on being a filmmaker. I was like, okay, guys, that's a dream that is not going to happen, you know, um, because I can't really make money out of that. So how am I supposed to have, um, you know, an adult life where you pay bills and support yourself if you're doing something that doesn't actually give you any money? So I kind of gave up on that until a few years later, I got the opportunity to come to the United States to do a master's degree in filmmaking. And that's what I did. I just kind of left everything behind, family, friends, job, uh, everything. And I said, I'm going to try and, and pursue this dream. I want to, I want to give it a shot. And probably one of the best decisions of my life. Because <laughs> uh, after that, I was able to, I did a Master of Fine Arts in um, Mass Communication and Media Arts at Southern Illinois University. Um, and um, as you know, with an MFA, you can teach in, university, in universities. And I was able to combine the two things in life that I loved, because I always loved teaching. That was something that I always enjoyed. Um, I also liked teaching English, so I could teach in English. It was not teaching English, but it was teaching in English. So that was a good thing too. 
and I could teach film, which was something that I also really enjoyed. And I would still have time and it would be part of my job actually to make my own films. So I kind of, I was able to combine everything that I loved. It was just like this perfect solution to everything where I was able to get this job that I am really happy with, um, that pays my bills, right? I don't have to be a starving artist, which is, I think a lot of something that a lot of artists face for at least, you know, the beginning of their careers. Um, and yeah, I was able to just do what I like. And so I consider myself very lucky that I was able to, to change my life around and, and pursue my dream. How did you find... Was a... Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just gonna say that was a long answer to your question. No, great answer. <laughs> Um, but I'm curious, how did you find out about the program in um, Illinois? So what happened was uh, I was teaching at an English school in Brazil that was associated with the American uh, embassy. Uh, so they have a program called Education USA, which is essentially to support international students to go to come to the United States and study. So I heard of a Fulbright grant for academically excellent students who always studied in public schools, which was my case, um, that wanted to pursue either a master's degree or a doctoral degree in the United States. So, you know, it checked all the boxes for me. I was like, well, you know, I think I should apply to this and, and see what happens because I always wanted to study in the United States. That has always been another dream of mine. I used to go to these international education fairs and talk to, you know, university officials and, and practice my English and look at their catalogs and they would send catalogs to my house and I would just look at them and think, wow, I really wish I could do this. But at the same time, I would look at the tuition prices and I was like, there's no way I can't afford this. This is impossible for me. So then there was this grant, right? And I knew the person who worked in the office. So I asked her more about it. And she was like, you should totally apply. And I was like, yeah, but, but this grant only pays for the application for the master's programs. It doesn't actually pay for the program. And then she said, don't worry, because if you get the grant, I will be your advisor. So that was part of the grant. And I will show you how to find funding in the United States directly with the universities, which I didn't know was a possibility. So I was like, oh, OK, cool. So I applied for that grant and I got it. So um, they gave me, like I don't remember how much, but a, a certain amount of money to um, apply for the programs in the United States. Um, and I had this advisor and we started looking for different programs that had filmmaking uh, options, right? For master's degrees. And I think I narrowed down my search to three schools after I used Peterson's guide. I don't know if you know what it is, it's just a this website that has lists all of the schools in the United States and all of the programs. So I, I did the search there and I found like three schools that I was like, okay, this, this three, they have the program that I want and I would, I would like these ones. Um, 
one was one of one of them was Syracuse University. The other one was, I believe, it was New York Film Academy, and the other one was Southern Illinois University. So I applied to Syracuse first. I got accepted, but they gave me only a fifty percent scholarship. So I would. Uh, I don't remember if Syracuse is private. Maybe it might be, um, but they gave me only half a scholarship, so I would have to find the other fifty percent and live in New York State, which is pretty expensive. Then SIU accepted me, and they gave me a full tuition waiver and an assistantship to work for the university with a monthly stipend with and. Um, when we saw the offer, my advisor, she looked at it and she said, there is no way you're going to get a better offer than this. She's like, this is an excellent offer. You, you cannot pass this. This is amazing. Um, she said, can you afford going to New York and paying half of the tuition and, and leave there? And I said, no. And she said, then forget Syracuse because you can't really make it there. Um, also, Southern Illinois was a little city named Carbondale, where I end up, and you know, much cheaper than New York for being a small town. Um, so I think I didn't even apply to the New York Film Academy because they actually didn't have any full tuition waivers either. So she was like, no, let's save the, the rest of the money for something else. And I was like, okay. So I declined Syracuse, accepted SIU, and it was a great decision um, because uh, it was a great school. I had amazing professors. They had so many resources there. Um, I was at first very concerned about moving to such a small town because I am a city girl. I live all of my life. I lived in a big city in Brazil. And so when I looked Carbondale in the map, I was scared. I was like, oh my God, this is such a small place going to be awful but I loved it it was such a cool place I made so many friends from all over the world um, it's the campus is beautiful uh, the seasons are very well defined and you know everything is like it's everything is pretty all around um, it was just an amazing experience it was just you know really fantastic I learned so much uh, I feel like in terms of knowledge, I grew so much and as a person too, you know, cause it was the first time of me living abroad, uh, you know, by myself in another country, having to take care of myself. And, and it was just, you know, such a big experience for me that, and, and I know it's not just for me because I have so many friends from my time, from the years I spent in Carbondale. And everybody says the same thing. Like we all have these very fond memories of, of being there and, and you know, um, learning and enjoying uh, being there. And um, it was definitely, you know, we all have this, not that we all have this dream, but I had this dream of, oh, I wanna live in New York, right? I, I wanna be, I wanna be part of the Sex and the City crew, right? <laughs> um, so I never really imagined myself in that, like this little town in the heartland, um, but I loved it. It was amazing. It was just such a good experience and I miss it a lot. I actually 
plan. I hope I can visit next year. I can just go back to the area. And I still have friends there. and Hopefully visit little Carbondale and go to the places where I used to go to eat and, and visit the campus and everything. Because it was a it was a beautiful time that I had there. So that's how I ended up there. I looked up pictures and it looks it looks pretty like looks like there's a lot of outdoor yeah things. how far away is it from like did you go to Chicago every now and then or sometimes it's not that close it's six hours by train uh the closest big city is actually St. Louis in Missouri oh, okay. so we we would go to St. Louis more often like flights would leave from St. Louis usually which is two hours away from from Carbondale. Uh, but yeah, sometimes I would go to Chicago, would take the train. And <laughs> I went to a couple of concerts in Chicago uh, with friends because that's where the big concerts were. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it was uh, it was closer to, to St. Louis than it was to Chicago. So it's almost really almost, this, if you look in the map, it's almost in the center of the country. It's very, oh, okay. yeah. Did it's really the heartland. Lollapalooza? No, I didn't. <laughs> but I had a friend who went. Yeah. But I didn't go. <laughs> and then what was like the, I guess the overall, I'll just say art community like in, in that town? Because I know, I guess they had that program. So I'm assuming they probably also had other like arts. Actually very strong. It's very artistic oriented. Uh, not only they had this program, the film and TV program there, but they also had a big art program about the, a, a big theater program, musical theater. Um, so it's actually very big. Uh, they had art galleries. The university had a museum. Um, so I went to a lot of exhibits. The film department where I went to has several professors who are very interested in experimental film. So there was an experimental film series called... I think it was called Film Fridays. And they would just use this old theater in town for the screenings. And it was always of experimental films. Um, so that's how I ended up knowing about experimental films. I, I didn't know anything about it before. Um, so for example, I told you guys to watch La Jete. I watched La Jete in the experimental film series, you know, and, and at SIU. Um, so yeah, several of my professors were very oriented towards like experimental films, like um, art film, more, more of that route. So yeah, there is a big artistic community in the area. And not only that, but like in terms of crafts and everything, like there's those other little towns around Carbondale that have these art festivals throughout the year. So we would go and, and attend like an art festival that people were selling their paintings or selling the jewelry that they made. Um, so definitely very artistic oriented, lots, lots of artistic people in that area. How would you define experimental film? Is it just any I think experimental film is any film that doesn't necessarily have a clear narrative. That's probably how I would, I would describe it. Um, it's very broad. So if you watch, you know, Maya Darren, it's going to be one way. If you watch, um, um, now the name is escaping me. 
Chris Marker, the guy from Logic A, it's a different thing. Um, so, uh, sorry, for some reason, the, the names of the experiment filmmakers now are escaping me because, of course, it would, right? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, yes, that's what I was trying to say. Um, but, yeah, so it's, you know, if you look at different experimental films, you're going to see different things. But I think that the, the thing the, the thing that is mostly in common is the fact that they don't have a clear narrative like you know you would see in a documentary or that you would see in a in a narrative film uh, so experimental films usually don't do that they are they are more about the experience of watching that film than than trying to tell a, a, a clear story per se not that they don't always have a, sometimes they do have a story but it's not necessarily as um clear as a hollywood film would be for example and do you have a favorite film that you worked on while you were there which would you say your thesis film was your favorite yeah my thesis film for sure i worked on it for several years um I actually built up to it. It was interesting because at first I didn't quite know what I was going to do, but I realized looking back on the work that I did for my program that everything was kind of related. So I was kind of already dabbing with the subject of what I wanted to do, um, but in different ways. So I was in my own way experimenting with things like even photographs and I did I did a little painting, I did some experimental films, I did like I did a little bit of everything. And it culminated in a narrative film about domestic violence. Um, but the theme, it was kind of already recurrent from the other work that I was doing before. But for my thesis film, um, I did a lot of research. So I started volunteering at the local women's center. Um, I took their training, um, which was several weeks of training on, on domestic violence and how to assist survivors of domestic violence, um, how to recognize domestic violence, like all of that. I did the, the entire training and I volunteered at the center for a little while as well. And based on that knowledge, I wrote the screenplay for my film. Um, so it ended up being a 30 minute narrative film um, that, you know, I, it, was, it was hard work, but I had a lot of help. Luckily I found many other students willing to assist me um, and several undergraduate students also. And friends who also came to my rescue when I needed them, um, like the main location for the film belong. It was a house that belonged to a couple who were my friends and who happened to be traveling to Brazil during spring break. And they just allowed me to use the house throughout the whole um, the whole break. So that was my main location. So that was awesome. Um, and my actors were very generous. Um, you know, I. I it was really, it was a really good experience. Something interesting about that film though, is that once I finished the program, so, you know, you have to do your defense at SIU, we have to do a public screening. So I had a public screening at the library, uh, at the university library that had like this auditorium that was pretty cool. 
so I had a public screening of my film and then I had my defense with my committee. Um, but after that, I was a broke graduate student and I didn't really have money to send the film to festivals. So I didn't, I didn't send it to festivals. Um, it's just, it just sat in the drawer for a couple of years. And after a few years, I decided to put it online. I was like, well, you know, I guess I'm going to put it online since I didn't, it was too late to send festivals. There is like a, a time limit of two years once you, you finish your film to, to be accepted into festivals. So it was already too late. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess my only option is to put it online. So I put it on my YouTube channel, but I never really advertised about it. You know, I just put it there. And then I have a second YouTube channel, which is a channel in Portuguese, where I give tips about films, right? Um, so that channel was getting a little traction. And one day I receive an email that says, congratulations, your film just hit 10,000 views. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And I thought it was one of the videos from the channel in Portuguese. So I look and I'm like, where is it? I can't find it. And then I decided to look in the other channel and my personal channel. And when I realized it was my thesis film, the domestic violence film. And I was like, what? The film got traction on its own. I never advertised it ever. And it just started gaining viewership. And that happened, I think, two years ago that I got 10,000 views. I think now I'm over 40,000 views. And I get comments like today I got a comment on it. Actually, someone wrote something like I didn't see that coming um, oh. about the story. And it's so interesting because, you know, when when you're making a film, sometimes you think that people are going to comment on the cinematography or the editing or something technical. Right. But it turns out that if you make a good film, people will only talk about your story. And that's what I have going on with my film. Like people go comment on it and they say, oh my God, she shouldn't have done that. Or this is what she should have done. Like they're commenting about the actions of the characters instead of any other thing, um, which to me is very satisfying. It's like, oh, I love it because they are really engaged with the story. You know, and not really, they're not worried about technical things, which is, you know, I was worried about when the film first came out. I'm like, oh, I did all, everything was wrong. Um, but yeah, it turns out that people don't care about that. <laughs> they really do care about the story. And, and I think I did a good job telling that story. Um, the only sad thing is, um, which I guess, it's sad, but it was also the purpose of the film because the purpose of the film was always to alert people and show people what a domestic violence situation was like, right? Because oftentimes people don't know what it is and they don't understand that they can get out, right? So that was also part of the purpose of the film was to, you know, kind of shed a light on the subject and hopefully people who watch it could look and say, wow, I think my friend is in a situation like that, or I think I am in a situation like that, and they might not have realized until they watched the film, right? So that was kind of part of it. But when I look at the analytics from YouTube, 
the majority of people who are watching my film are women, which is very telling. And at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a spike in viewership in my film. And of course, I don't have the data to say why, but I do know that a lot of people reported that they being locked with their abusers for such a long time increased the, the instances of domestic violence um, around the globe. This is, this is, you know, it was almost like a second pandemic. Um, so I'm not necessarily surprised that suddenly all of these women started watching the film because it's very likely that people started Googling about their situation and my film popped up, you know, in the, in the, um, from the, the, what do you call them? Not on the results. Search? Yeah, the results, but there, there's a, there is a better term for it, but yes, the results. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm trying to say, uh, oh, you know, the thing that YouTube Keyword? uses to, Keywords. Yeah, they use the keywords. They use the keywords, but the algorithm. That's oh. that's the word I was looking for. So when they type the keywords, the algorithm just pushed my film up, which makes sense. Um, that you know, uh, and and I think that's how my film is getting traction. Actually, it's probably people googling domestic violence or something like that, and the algorithm is is pulling my film up uh, for people to watch, but. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's a movie that I made, you know, with the purpose of, of, of course, finishing my MFA, right? That was, of course, uh, a big purpose, but also with the purpose of maybe helping women who are in that situation to see themselves represented on screen and maybe realize that they are in a situation of danger and that they can look for help. Um, and because I couldn't really send it to festivals, it was almost like the film was doomed to never be watched. And then suddenly, just because I thought, yeah, you know, I should just put this on YouTube for my portfolio. Suddenly, you know, I have over 40,000 views. I would never have 40,000 views in film festivals. You know, maybe you get hundreds, but not not 40,000, not that number. So that's the beautiful thing about streaming nowadays. Like it, it reaches a lot more people than, than we did in the past, which is very nice for independent filmmakers. And could you say the name of the film for? Oh, sure. It's In the Eyes of Others. And so if, you Google, if you Google In the Eyes of Others, Elisa Herman, it's probably gonna pop up. <laughs> Um, okay, so would you like to talk about your, I'm sure you had a lot of other film projects, but do you want to talk about your newest one, uh, Umbanda? Yes, of course. So um, this documentary is called Umbanda Offerings of Faith, and it was just officially released uh, in the United States um, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston during the Afro histories, um, Afro-Atlantic histories exhibit that is currently being displayed at the museum. Uh, and Umbanda is a Brazilian religion. It was founded in Brazil, uh, but it has uh, roots in an African religion, Candomblé, as well as an European religion, uh, Spiritism or Cardicism, 
uh, also roots in Catholicism and indigenous religions from Brazil. Um, so we, we say that it's a syncretic, syncretic religion, which means it got elements from all of these other religions, mixed them and created something new out of that. Um, and then it became its own religion uh, in Brazil. Um, this film was actually shot in 2018. It was my first feature documentary. Uh, I shot it um, in the month of June or July, I believe, when I was in Brazil uh, for a period of about a month. And I visited three temples uh, in my hometown uh, of Curitiba. Um, one of these temples is the biggest one in Brazil, the biggest temple of Umbanda in Brazil. And um, so I interviewed the, the priests, the priestesses, um, the, the members, the other members, the followers, the believers, and some experts as well in the area to kind of explain what the religion is because Umbanda suffers a lot of prejudice, even in Brazil, um, because it has elements that people think could be evil. Um, it suffers a lot of prejudice. And so the, the film, the idea of the film was to show an objective look at the, the religion and hopefully people who watch the film, once they finish watching it, they will see that there's nothing to fear. It's a religion just like any other religion. Um, and hopefully that will help with uh, people being le less prejudiced against uh, Umbanda and the, and the followers of Umbanda. Um, so as I said, I shot in 2018, um, you know, editing took about a year, a year and a half to be completed. And then when the film was almost ready, the pandemic hit, right? And then all the festivals shut down. There was no face-to-face -face festivals anymore. And I really did want to release my film in person at first. I didn't want to just put it online. So I waited until the time was, you know, the time came where we could again go to a movie theater uh, and the opportunity arised um, to show it in Houston at the museum, which is an amazing location. Um, and I was just so happy to do it and being part of this exhibit, which is brilliant. It's so, it's such a good exhibit. Um, so I was very honored to be invited to, to show my film there. And this weekend, I'm actually showing it in Brazil for the people who were part of it. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having a screening on Sunday, uh, December 5th. Um, it's going to be in an open air theater um, outside so that, you know, it's safer because of COVID. Um, limited attendance also because of COVID, masks, all of that. But at least I'm getting to show it to the people who helped me make the film, um, which I really wanted to do um, for a long time and just there was no way to do it. So I'm, I'm really excited uh, that that's happening this weekend. So as soon as I'm out of quarantine, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be showing the film to, to this, this uh, wonderful group of people who helped me. Do you, have, do you know if you, um, like how it will be, I guess, distributed or like, will it be available after these premieres or will you be able to submit it to festivals this year? 
yeah, so my plan is to start submitting to festivals. So as soon as, you know, I have the premiere here, I, I plan on, on submitting to festivals. Um, I also think I'm going to probably do one online screening, um, like a scheduled online screening where I will invite more people to watch because um, I have a lot of people asking me about the movie that they want to see, but either they can't come to the physical screening because they are not here or some other commitment or they are somewhere else in the world, um, but they want to watch it. So I, I want to honor that. So I'm, I'm thinking about how to do it. I'm still planning, but I think I will have one virtual online screening for people where I can do maybe a Zoom Q&A at the end um, and then send it to festivals, you know, and once the festival circuit is over, then I don't know, uh, either, either, um, you know, maybe I will find some distribution for it, which is a possibility. But if I don't, it's probably just going to go online, just like my other film ended up on YouTube and hopefully having a lot of viewership too. That's, that's probably the plan for it. I think the, the film, um, I was able to watch the film at the premiere um, in the US. And I feel like it could probably go on like PBS well. Like I feel like it, it could do well there, but I'm not yeah. a producer. I don't know. I don't know who does that. <laughs> well, I, thank you. That's a big honor. If PBS wants to to have it there, I would be honored to, to show it at PBS. Uh, yeah, I really don't know. I mean, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll find out once it's in festivals. That's usually how you end up finding distribution, right? Someone in a festival sees it and, and decides to, to buy it for distribution. So um, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So you had, um, I guess, the two films we kind of discussed are the narrative film, which centered on uh, domestic violence, or is it domestic abuse? Yes. Yeah, domestic violence, yeah. And then your newest film, which is a documentary about um, uh, a religion, like kind mm -hmm. of a, I don't want to say lesser known, but I guess you said pre like there's a little bit, there's prejudice with it. Yeah. Yes. So when you are working on films or do you feel like filmmaking as a, as an art, should like kind of focus on, I don't know, educating people on something or what do you think? Yeah, social causes are important to me. So a lot of my films have to do with some sort of social cause. I'm actually, I have a new short documentary that I'm gonna be screening um, at the university next year and starting to submit to festivals, which is about undocumented students in the United States. So social, cause, social causes are important to me. This is something that I feel passionate about and I can see that my work as a filmmaker can be a tool for me to promote different social causes or, or at least shed a light on social issues that need more attention to. Um, so I'm not saying that every movie should be like that because I think that there is a space for movies that are simply entertaining. 
that it's just for you to sit, relax, watch, have some fun. You know, I think there's a space for that. I think that actually the pandemic showed that we need that. In a way, this kind of entertainment saved us during the pandemic, right? When you couldn't really go out and do other things and life was really depressing. All I wanted to do was watch a silly comedy on TV. Like I didn't really want to be like watching a movie about whales that are um, getting extinct, you know? I wanted to just be entertained. And, and I think that there is a space for that too, right? Um, but I also think that it's important that some filmmakers or artists in general have this focus on social causes. And that's something that speaks to me personally. So I enjoy doing that. That's something that I, I find a topic and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I wanna know more about it. I want more other people to know more about it. I wanna shed a light on this topic. I wanna, I wanna give space for people to tell their stories. And that's something that I like to do. But I think there's a space for everybody, you know. I also think that there's a space for a silly, silly Adam Sandler comedy uh, that you just watch and laugh, and, and that's it, you know. That that's good too. It's not there's I, I have nothing against that, but it's not the kind of thing that I do right now. But maybe in the future, I don't know. Maybe in the future I'll write a very silly comedy and, <laughs> and decide to go that route. But right now, it's not what I'm interested in doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Adam Sandler movies actually did help me during the pandemic. But I feel like even even the, funny. the silly, silly like types of things like, I mean, a lot of his stuff, no offense, is pretty stupid. But like, even The Office, you know, I feel like there's always some I feel like if it's a good story, which usually lends people to being entertained that there's usually something there while it might not be like you know super yeah you can definitely you can it. definitely combine it yeah mm -hmm. for sure there are some some you know silly comedies that bring up some very important topics for sure bring awareness to things yeah definitely um one one fun fact i don't know if you knew about this but a, a fun fact about the series friends is that um when they were recording Friends, in all of the episodes where the characters had sex, there was always a condom around. Wow. And that was on purpose. They were doing that on purpose to, um, to advertise safe sex. And I, I read about it a while ago and I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So you see something silly like Friends was also bringing up something important. Um, some important topic even though it was not necessarily part of the plot where the story is about that uh, you know there was there was a maybe a subliminal message going on going on there so yeah of course you can certainly you can certainly have important topics being added in comedy and and people just could you know learn something while they're laughing and that's probably the best way to learn something anyways right <laughs> you probably will never forget learning something while they're laughing so okay i just have two more questions actually i'll just ask a third one real quick do you have a name a title for your upcoming documentary yes it's called undocumented a dream of education mm. okay look forward to 
seeing that, hearing more about it. Um, okay, so the last two questions are, um, do you have any advice for, you know, people maybe, let me rephrase it. Do you have any advice for people when it comes to, I guess, following, I don't wanna say following their dreams, well, like that, or like, you know, if you have a passion in something, do you have advice for how people, you know, can maybe try to find ways to work with it, like like you're doing? Yeah. Um, first, I think that you know it's a cliche thing, but never give up on your dream. I think that's that's a cliche, but it's very true. Um, but sometimes you have to put your dreams on hold, which is what I had to do. Right at some point, I just had to make a tough decision of doing something else because I needed to support myself. Um, but putting your dreams on hold don't mean doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stop pursuing them. It just means that you need time. You need more time. And it's okay. You know, sometimes we feel like we're getting too old to do things. And I don't think there's such a thing. I don't think you're never too old to do anything. Um, so if you can't pursue your dream right now, don't panic. Do what you need to do right now. If, it's, if you need to work something else, if you need to do something else, if maybe you're taking care of a sick relative uh, and you can't do what you need to do right now, just put your dream on hold for a little while, gather the tools that you need to pursue it, and then move on. Don't ever think that just because you can't do it right now, you can't do it at all. Um, eventually, doors will open. If you keep fighting for it, eventually things will happen. So never give up is, is what I would say, you know, although difficulties might come your way and they will probably come because that's life. Um, and sometimes you might just need to step on the brakes for a little while. That's okay. Don't get discouraged. Just keep doing what you're doing and eventually things will turn out. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sure. That. Um, and the last question I have is, so how would you, how do you define art if you had to? That, that's a difficult question. I actually remember that my first class in my art degree school, in my art uh, uh, undergraduate degree, was the, the teacher asked us, what is art? And I think that we came up with a lot of definitions and nobody could really pinpoint like what art was. Uh, it was so difficult because art can mean anything to you. And I think that um, I think that what the definition that got closer to what I think what art is um, would be art is whatever is done with artistic intention. So if you are making a painting and your intent is for that, that to be art, then that's art, right? If you are making a movie and your intent is for that movie to be art, then that movie is art. Um, if you're making jewelry and your intent is for the jewelry to be art, then that's art. Um, you know, the level of... Uh, if it's good art or bad art, then that's a different story. 
But I think that if you are making something and your intention is that that thing that you're doing is art, then I would call it art. It's art, right? Because you're, you're making it with that intention. So that's, that's what I would define as art. Um, and then, you know, if you end up a day, um, your, your painting is hanging right next to the Mona Lisa, then, hey, that's great. You know, you made it with the big ones. But if it just ends up hanging in your mom's living room, it's still art. It's still appreciated. People are still looking at it. You still did with the same intent, you know? So it's still art. I, I wouldn't really say that it's lesser art than the Mona Lisa. It's art the same way, right? But um, it, it really, what matters is your intention when you're doing it. That would be my answer to what art is. <laughs> Okay, thank you. I think that's a good definition. Um, and then do you have any final thoughts or anything that maybe we didn't get to cover that you wanted to add on? I, I want to just say about a little pandemic movie that I made that uh, it ends up ended up getting less attention than I, I would have liked. Uh, but it was a fun little project that I did uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, when we couldn't really go and shoot anything. Oh, and actually you saw it, the movie about the snow. You saw that one. Uh, so I, I still have to send it to more festivals. I actually just haven't had the time. But uh, during the pandemic, I couldn't really shoot anything, right? It was hard to schedule interviews or whatever. And I really wanted to work on a project. So the year before, I believe in the end of 2019, my dad had some Super 8 films uh, in, the, in the spools, just in a cabinet. And we decided to digitize them. We were like, hey, let's digitize those films and see what's in them. So, you know, we sent it to this man in my hometown that knew how to do it. We got them digitized. And when we got them back, there were, I believe, 10 or 12 spools of film. When we got them back, we realized that half of them were of a single day in Curitiba, which is my hometown, that is remembered to this day. It's the day of the big snowstorm of 1975. And for people listening to this, they might think, what's the big deal with a snowstorm? Well, it is a big deal because it doesn't really snow where I'm from. It's, I mean, I'm from Brazil. And although some areas of Brazil do get snow, my hometown gets cold, but it doesn't really snow there. Um, so it has not snowed since 1975. That was the last time. And people remember that day very fondly. People have, like every year, people will post pictures or talk about the snow, or they will say things like, is it going to snow again this year? Everybody like is so excited trying to think about, you know, rooting for snow, like really wanting the snow to fall. And it never does because just, just not the weather is not really good for that. So we found the films and we realized that like half of them were of the day of the snowstorm. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is like, you know, history recorded because I had seen, I had seen a lot of pictures from that day, but not, not films. Um, I don't think a lot of people had film cameras at the time. It was not really that common in Brazil. Um, for like 
just regular people to have a camera. It was expensive. So it was, it was a big surprise. So, you know, we had those films and then during the pandemic, I asked my dad, I was like, Hey, can I do something with those? And he was like, Oh yeah, sure. You can do something with those. And I was like, okay, I want to interview you and mom. So I interviewed them via zoom and I asked them questions about that day. That was essentially, you know, what the movie was about. So I was just asking them like questions about that day. And then I just assembled the film with the, you know, the B-roll for the film was the films that my dad recorded. And the interviews were the Zoom interviews with my, with my parents, which, you know, were not the best quality because it was Zoom. Um, but, you know, I think it didn't matter because it was a pandemic movie. And um, what I did was um, in the anniversary of the snowstorm, uh, which is, I believe, July 19th was when it happened because winter in Brazil is in July. Um, So July 19th, when it happened, I decided to just release it on Facebook for people to see. Uh, Facebook is still very strong in Brazil. So I was like, hey, I'm just going to, you know, put this online and see what happens. And I got so many views. I don't remember even how many now, but I got a lot of views and a lot of people watching the film and commenting things like, oh my God, I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was such an emotional day. And then telling, you know, all of these stories about their experience with the snow day. Um, So it was, you know, it was a really fun little project that I did uh, that, you know, was during the pandemic. So it was just a little something that I could do. And um, although it's not the best film that I've made in terms of a technical thing because you know there was no lighting there was no microphone there was nothing like that like it couldn't really be done I feel like I was even I was able to tell a a nice story that was touching it was a nice tribute to my parents and also I did it in memory of my aunt who passed away um, in the beginning of this year Uh, it's kind of suddenly and she is in the movie because she was with my parents in the snow day uh, so she appears in the movie, like, you know, they are, all of them are very young. My, my parents had been married for like a year when, when the, when they recorded this. So they didn't have kids yet. It was like all of this, you, you they, I think that part of the, one of the things my mom says in the movie is that she was very emotional to see herself young, like, Oh, look at that. You know, look at how young I was. Um, so, you know, it was just this little project that I did uh, during the pandemic that I really need to start sending it to festivals. I just haven't had the time, but um, hopefully during this winter break now, uh, I, I can I can start sending it to festivals. Since I'm starting to send the other two to festivals, I can send this one too. And hopefully some more people will see it. It, may, it might be the case that only people in my city will care. <laughs> you know that they will watch it and think remember that day so fondly and people in other states or countries might go like yeah you know i don't care about this and that's okay i think that my long-term plan for this movie is to um repost it on facebook every year on the same day so like july 19th every year i'm gonna just go like and say hey snow day <laughs> just hopefully more people will watch it as uh, as it happens so that's, uh, that's kind of a fun little plan for this movie. It's kind of a different approach. Uh, I usually wait to 
post things online until I submit to festivals. And this one, I just decided to do it the other, other way around. I said, you know what? I'm just going to post it. And, you know, and, and later if festivals don't want it, and that's fine. I really just want people to see this and enjoy it. Remember that day. And that's it. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, the Snowstorm of 1975. Oh. Cool. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention or... Do you have like so. a production site, website or something? Or? Yes. So my website is elisaherman.com. So uh, E-L-I-S-A-H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N. Okay. So that's my personal website. Um, it's not really up to date. So the last three films that I talked about are not there. <laughs> but the other ones are, including oh. In the Eyes of Others. In the Eyes of Others is also there. Um, which I think is when I put it on YouTube, actually, when I was building the website. I was like, oh, you know, I should oh, just, yeah. you know, build the website, put it on YouTube. So I, I need to update it and I'll probably put the snow movie there. Um, the other one is not yet, but um, maybe the, since the snow movie is already online, there's no reason to not put it there. So I might just update it at some point. Cool. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you for this. Of course. It's been a pleasure. Very entertaining for a quarantine day. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I think you had another meeting today, right? Too? Yeah, in the afternoon I had, a, busy. had a work meeting. <laughs> yeah, because I'm kind of still working anyways, just yeah. from, you know, I'm doing a version of the film to play at the cinema here without subtitles and stuff so I've been working on that uh, with all the titles in Portuguese so you know I had to to do a little work on the film oh wow um, you had to do make everything it already no I had already yeah. I had already created so the titles with the name of the people and the title of the movie that I showed to you guys are in English but I have the version in Portuguese so I'm just doing like a last pass to make sure everything looks okay um and i actually just exported a version this afternoon and i realized that one title was still in english so i had to go back and i'm like oh man i forgot to delete this one um so yeah it's just a little little touching up not nothing nothing major uh just a little touching up for the for the screening here they also want it in a different format so i have to export in a different format but yeah nothing nothing too big but i was working on that as well and grading all of that good stuff yeah right thank you